0: You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Jeremiah chapter 20 we will break into the narrative of Jeremiah's ministry just after Jeremiah had been beaten 40 times and had just spent a day in the stocks, the most uncomfortable way to spend a day. And we have here in the passage I want to read to you this morning what was happening inside of Jeremiah just after that experience with beating the stocks and with a heated exchange with the man who had him beaten and placed in the stocks. Listen to what Jeremiah said to the Lord. Verse 7 of Jeremiah 20. O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. <clears throat> thou hast overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction. You see, God's word to Jeremiah was to proclaim to the people of Judah that they were about to be carried away captive as punishment for their sins. His message was not a happy one. The false prophets of the day were saying, Peace, peace, everything's all right. It's all going to turn out okay. Jeremiah came along and said, No, it's not. It's going to be terrible. His message was not popular. I proclaim violence and destruction, he said, because for me the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. But if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in. I cannot endure it. For I have heard the whispering of many, terror on every side. Denounce him, yes, let us denounce him. All my trusted friends watching for my fall say, perhaps he will be deceived so that we may prevail against him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a dread champion. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will be utterly ashamed because they failed with an everlasting disgrace that will not be forgotten. Yet, O Lord of hosts, thou who dost test the righteous, who seest the mind and the heart, let me see thy vengeance on them. For to thee I have set forth my cause. And now a burst of song. Listen to the man. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. For he has delivered the soul of the needy one from the hand of evildoers. And then he plummets down in the suicidal depression after rejoicing. Listen to him. Cursed be the day when I was born. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. Don't sing happy birthday to me. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father saying, Baby boy has been born to you and made him very happy. Let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew without relenting. Let him hear an outcry in the morning and a shout of alarm at noon because he did not kill me before birth. I wish an abortion would have been performed on my mother when I was pregnant. When she was pregnant with me. That's what he's saying. So that my mother would have been in my grave and her womb ever pregnant. Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow So that my days have been spent in shame. Remarkable outpouring of the heart of a man of God. Six years ago, when I was still in my 20s, my family and I traveled to a Bible conference up in Canada. And during that week of conference, I shared the preaching responsibilities with a man who at that time was in his late 60s or early 70s. It was understood by me and by all who were there that one of the reasons for the pairing of this gentleman with myself was so that he could provide a balance, the balance of age, to my youthful immaturity and then experience. Just a month and a half ago, my wife and I traveled to Upper State New York, where I was again sharing the preaching responsibilities at a Bible conference. This time, however, the fellow that I was preaching with was a young man in his 20s, (laughs) and it was a bit unnerving to see how I had been shifted to the other side of the balancing act. My wife, who generally runs ahead of things a little bit, bought me a book for my 35th birthday last July entitled, men in midlife crisis. <laughs> it is true, I suppose, that in this very early stage of my career as a middle-aged man that I am asking questions <clears throat> of myself. I am asking questions now which perhaps I hadn't asked before or questions which if I did ask before likely were not too much different than merely being asked for the academic intrigue of the question for their curiosity value, but I find that with advancing years, that the questions that I'm asking are taking on a new personal sense of urgency. I wonder if you're asking questions like I am, maybe you're younger, older. I wonder if your mind runs along the same line that mine sometimes does. Do you talk to yourself like this? I do. What is really supposed to help people keep going? What is it supposed to be? Our lives are so full of pressures, conflicting responsibilities, hectic schedules, money problems, family problems, personal hang-ups, confusion, doubts, uncertainties... And it's true that as those of us who know Christ as Savior, we have the principles of the Word of God to live by. Praise God for that. We're taught those principles here in this church, and I'm thankful for that. The word of God has principles to live by. I have them. You have them. Some of them. Yes, it's true that we have the hope of one day being with the Lord. It's true that as I contemplate my narrow future, my limited future, that I can look beyond that and say that one day I'm going to be with Him. And then I'm going to know him perfectly. I'll know me perfectly. And I'll be perfect. I'll be a man that isn't afflicted with all of these things of weakness and temptation and doubts and discouragements and frustrations. That'll be gone. And I praise God for the blessed hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's assurance that fast anchor the soul. It's also true that um, we have resource to prayer. Some of us pray. A little more when things are tough, a little less when things are all right sometimes. But we pray. Yet I wonder with all of this. I wonder with our knowledge of the principles of the Word of God. I wonder with our determination to live as we should before God. I wonder with, uh, with all of our spiritual resources of spending time with the Lord and praying to the Lord and studying His Word and fellowshipping with each other and coming to church on Sunday. I wonder if with all of this that we have going for us, I sometimes wonder, is something missing? ever that something missing sometimes here people talk about their incredible experience of joy the way they talk you'd think they're always feeling up I don't something missing is there something down deep that's supposed to be there but isn't there I wonder I hear some people talk about sin some Christians talk about sin and their hatred of sin is so strong, they tell me, that when temptations come, they immediately turn from that temptation with holy disgust. I don't. I find temptation rather appealing. I find myself drawn to it. I find myself wanting to nurture it sometimes. Giving in on occasion. Yet I know the principles. I know what it means about grieving the Spirit and quenching the Spirit. I've taught courses and that sort of thing. What's missing? What's missing? Is there something? Some Christians speak glowingly of living above their circumstances, yet so many that I know, many times myself included, are mired down in the middle of our circumstances. When the hurricane came, or was supposed to come, the threat of it was there, we took down our awning. We have a large canvas awning on our back patio. And I took it down with some help. And after the hurricane didn't come, we had to put it back up. That was one of the largest spiritual struggles that I faced. I was in a bad mood. Caught in the middle of ridiculously trivial, by one standard, circumstances. What's missing? Something not there? <clears throat> Did you ever find your mind working in that direction wondering about the fact that yes, we've got this and we've got that we're doing this our life's in shape here everything seems to be organized but something's not quite at the core of what it should be. What's missing? Now think deeply with me. I want to dig way down to the very core of our being, if I can. I want to dig way down to the depths and to suggest what I believe the scriptures say may be missing in me to some degree. I might not be entering into the fullness of what could be there and perhaps you're not either. Something central. Not memorize more, read more, pray more, study more, go to church more, give more. That's good. I don't mean to treat that lightly. But underneath all that, Something central in the human personality which I find lacking so much in me and in people with whom I talk. What is it? Let me give you a word for it. Just a word that I've chosen to label what I want to discuss with you and spend the rest of our time discussing it. The word I want to use to label this element that I believe is missing is the word character. And I want to explore this core ingredient that I'm choosing to call character. This core ingredient of a truly spiritual life in a series of two messages today and next Sunday, I want to discuss this topic under two titles. The title of the message today is, Character, What It Is. And next Sunday, Character, How It Develops. Today, what are we talking about? Character, what is it? Well, I found it helpful in order to define what something is to first of all define what it isn't. So first of all, let's discuss character, what it isn't. And we'll look at character, what it is. When people try to figure out what's missing in their Christian experience, Satan is readily available to come up with some ideas. And to suggest to us ideas as to what's missing that really come very close to what the Word of God says is missing, but is just enough off-base that if we follow his wrong conception of what's missing, if we pursue something called character, but have a foggy, fuzzy, unbiblical, slightly... Distorted definition of character, we're going to end up in spiritual ruin and frustration and defeat. In preparing for this series of messages and thinking about the, what it means to have character, I've been studying the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah occurred to me as a man who understands and exemplified the meaning of the word character. <clears throat> and as I've been reading that book, I've been struck by two counterfeit conceptions of character running through the book and exemplified in different different ways. Two things have occurred to me as I've read the narrative. Two counterfeit conceptions of character that I want to discuss with you. First one is this, let me tell you what it is and then discuss it. When something's missing in your life, when you're aware of that, and you say, Lord I want more, Lord something isn't as it should be, Lord I want to be different, Lord I have this, that, and the other, but something central is gone. Do you sometimes handle that sense of emptiness, that sense of longing for more, by a renewed emphasis on what you're doing as a Christian? Let me suggest to you that character, at its deepest level, is not an emphasis on what we do. Look at Second Chronicles 35. That's backwards from Jeremiah by a little bit. 2 Chronicles 35. Let me give you the history of the passage I want to read to you. Thirteen years before Jeremiah began his ministry, a man by the name of King Josiah came to the throne of Judah. You all recall the story, I trust, how... A man named Jacob had his name changed to Israel, had 12 sons. They all went to Egypt. They got big. They were redeemed from Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. They were taken to the land of Canaan. They went through a period of judges where they were up and down. Then they wanted a king. Saul came along. Then David came along. Then Solomon came along. The kingdom was divided. You had a southern kingdom named Judah and a northern kingdom named Israel. And now we have King Josiah, who's one of the kings in the land of Judah. Did you get it? (laughs) King Josiah came to the throne of Judah the southern kingdom, 13 years before Jeremiah began his ministry. He was a good king. The northern kingdom had 19 bad kings. southern kingdom had 19 kings, some good, some bad. Josiah was one of the good kings. He was a man who wanted to lead his people in the ways of God. He was a good king. He was a king during Jeremiah's initial ministry. Five years after Jeremiah began his ministry, King Josiah happened to find, or one of the men in his palace, priest, found a book that had been missing for a long time. It was the book of the law. Perhaps the whole first five books of Moses, perhaps just a part of it, we're not sure. But they found some of Moses' law. And King Josiah, who wanted to live for God, found this Bible, essentially, had not seen it before and looked at it and said, wait a minute, the Bible says do this and this and this. We're not doing this and this and this. We should do it. One of the things the Bible says is we must come to the temple and worship and offer our sacrifices and our burnt offerings. We must celebrate the Passover. That's what God, through Moses, told his people to do, and he did. Told his people to do that. When Josiah realized that... Josiah called the people together and said folks we've got to start being obedient to scripture something's missing in our national life and we have to do what we're supposed to do and so they celebrated the Passover and it was quite a Passover. They redid the temple and they got the place shining and they had a real large experience of worship 2nd Chronicles 35 verse 18 says this and there had not been celebrated a Passover like it in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet nor had any of the kings of Israel celebrated such a Passover as Josiah did with the priests, the Levites, old Judah and Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the 18th year of Josiah's reign the Passover was celebrated get the picture of this crowds of Jews who had ignored the teaching of God for years regarding worship in the temple, were now coming to a freshly redecorated temple to obey the teaching of the word of God, isn't that good praise God what did God tell Jeremiah to do Look back at Jeremiah chapter 7. As the great crowds of Jews were coming to the temple... To celebrate the Passover in obedience to the word of God. Doing that which God commanded them. Likely it's the case that these great crowds were coming to the temple. And they were chanting the temple of the Lord. The temple of Jehovah. The temple of the Lord. And they were chanting that saying. Now we found what's missing in our lives. We're doing what's right. Josiah is leading us in a direction. We want to follow his leading. He's a good king. We love him. We'll do what he says. We're going to go to the temple. We'll follow the word of God. And now we know God is going to bless our lives because we're walking with him. God said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7, verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Jeremiah, you go stand in the gate of the temple, the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a host, the God of Israel, amend your ways, your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What's Jeremiah saying? Your lives, Jeremiah is telling these Jews who are coming to worship, your lives do not reflect the deep change within your personality which I, a holy God, require. Therefore, your acts of obedience count for nothing. You expect that because you are observing this religious ritual that things will go well with you, but you have not caught on to what's missing in your life. Now, let me draw the lesson from that. Sometimes I wonder... Do we think that when we become introspective and morose and worry about what's happening, why our lives are lacking something, do we sometimes think that what is lacking is that we're paying insufficient attention to our responsibilities as Christians, and therefore we begin to focus, I wonder, do we, focus our attention on what we're doing, what Christian acts we engage in when our lives aren't going well, we wonder what we should be doing to develop within us the character required to weather the storm. Lord, something's missing, I have that, but I think I know what it is, I need that. I need to spend more time in this activity. I need not to miss church. I need to do this, I need to do that. Things we probably all need to do. But is that what's missing? Is that the core? Let me say it as quick as I can. I don't believe that Christian character can be defined primarily in terms of an emphasis on what we do. Don't misunderstand me. What we do is important, crucially important, but it isn't central. Have you noticed how your spiritual activities, let me explain why this is. Have you noticed how your spiritual activities sometimes take a sudden and radical upturn before a crisis? Remember back in high school, you didn't miss a day of devotions before the final exam? Remember how that worked? What we do is right, much of the time. Things go wrong in our homes, and what we do is right. But rather than asking, what are we doing, should we not be asking, why are we doing it? And is it not likely... That because our hearts are so deceitful and desperately wicked above all things, get a big definition of sin. It's not just doing something wrong. It's a principle that's invaded my personality, which says, my way first, God, you come last. I'm in charge here. That's the principle of sin operating within me. And when I focus on developing my spiritual life by doing this, doing that, doing the other, when I focus on that, my sinful heart twists that around unconsciously, and I end up doing these things for the purpose of maneuvering God to get him to grant me what I want, and that's sin. Look at Jeremiah 34. <clears throat> a new king is now on the throne, a king named Zedekiah, the last king before the captivity. And Zedekiah the king, Jeremiah is still preaching, he preached during five kings. Jeremiah the king is in a tight spot. His country is being sieged, under siege by Babylon. And he calls the people together and he says, folks, we've got a problem. Let's get right with God. He said, I've noticed a verse in the Bible which says this, that we are not to be holding our Hebrew brothers and sisters slaves as we're doing, and yet you folks have your Hebrew brothers and sisters as slaves. Let them go. And the Hebrews said, we'll obey the word of God, and they let the Hebrew slaves go. They did that. Isn't that good? Isn't that what God uh, commands us to do and commends us for doing? Try striking, at that time, apparently, when the... Jews let the slaves go because they were afraid of Babylon sieging them at that time the Egyptian army probably came up behind and the Babylonian army had to withdraw their siege for a time and go take care of the Egyptian army and so the Jews who were inside who said uh oh Babylon's there let's let the slaves go let's do what God says to do and the Babylonians left you know what they did they grabbed the slaves back put the handcuffs back on why what's their motivation what's happening inside they obeyed the word of God in releasing the slaves. But that act alone did not reflect anything of godly character because it was done just to get the Babylonians away. Nothing shapes up our spiritual life so quickly as a threat to our welfare. We begin doing good things. But if our focus is on doing good things, our deceitful hearts will lead us into doing good things for wrong purposes and we're not moving in Christian character directions at all. A second thing which character is not... The second counterfeit of character cleverly developed by the enemies of God, I believe. Did you ever feel that something was wrong with your spiritual life because you didn't have an incredible sense of joyful anticipation about tomorrow? Ever feel that? You know, we know the Lord, tomorrow morning we're going to be able to serve him again. Can't you just not wait for tomorrow morning? How exciting. I don't feel that. Does the alarm clock, when it goes off at 6.30... Is that an invitation to an incredible experience of joy? Is there an irrepressible exuberance that swarms through you when you hear that chirping alarm? I enjoy preaching, but you know what? When that alarm went up this morning at 6.30, I didn't say to myself, oh, good. (laughs) Now I can get up and go preach. What I said was, i got to go preach. I guess I better get up. What's missing? Aren't I supposed to have a kind of a thing deep inside? Look at Jeremiah 12. You feel guilty that it isn't there? Jeremiah had just gotten word that his neighbors in his hometown where he was raised were going to kill him. He wasn't too happy. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 12, Jeremiah brings his complaint before God. He's tired. He's saying, Lord, I've served you. It's not going very well. And the prospect of serving you tomorrow doesn't excite me one little bit. What did God say to him? Look at verse 5. Remarkable verse. God speaking to his tired servant. If you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the wild jungle thickets of Jordan? Jeremiah, you've had a tiring race and faithful. Things are just getting underway. you're tired running against people try a horse, jeremiah that's when you gotta really get tired it's coming up for you tomorrow pretty soon you'll be beaten put in stocks for a day tossed in prison in a dungeon and let down into a cistern where there's mud on the floor you'll be sinking in mud for a while get excited about it jeremiah they have a very wrong view of the Christian life. It's unrealistic. That can build a false hope and a sense of eventual despair. There's a popular song going around by the Gaithers. I appreciate the Gaithers, but some of their music I think is questionable. Let me read you one that is. Can you imagine Jeremiah coming with that despair and hearing this in return? Can you imagine Jeremiah sitting in the back row and having us sing this? When the gloom and fear was lifted, my old heart just started to sing. And the song just keeps getting bigger, and it thrills my heart through and through. And if it keeps getting better and better, oh Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do. Got it, Jeremiah? Just getting better, isn't it? Aren't you excited? Boy, that's just not in Scripture. What does God tell us to do? Endure hardness. You have yet to resist sin unto blood. Be faithful in the fight. Do you have that incredible experience of just remarkable joy as you face tomorrow? If you do, praise God for it. But if you don't, don't be guilty for it. That's not what's missing in the core of our personalities. Some deep, exuberant anticipation. Some thrilling outlook which says tomorrow is going to be so wonderful I can't wait for it to come. I don't feel that way. And I used to be guilty that I didn't. But I am no longer. What is this thing called character? It's not an emphasis on doing right. You'll deceive yourself and do it for the wrong reason. It isn't some irrepressible exuberance that says I can't wait for tomorrow. That's just unrealistic. The Lord didn't have that. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He said, I'll give you my joy, the same joy that I have as I go to the cross. That's not the kind of joy that the song speaks of. So what's character? Jeremiah 20. Look at our text. It's not a preoccupation with doing right. That isn't the core ingredient. It's not a deep feeling of happy anticipation. That's not the core ingredient. What is it? Jeremiah has just been beaten 40 times, been put in the stocks. And by the way, these stocks, they put their neck in the stock, their hands in the stock, their legs in the stock, and their body was doubled over. And he spent a day there after being beaten. And he was let out and he had a heated exchange with... The priest who had put him there, and he was drained, and he came to God, and he told him how he felt. I'm always struck with the realism of biblical characters and how the Spirit records for us what really happened inside of them. No false piety in here. Jeremiah tells God that every time he opens up his mouth to say what God has told him to say, he gets in big trouble. He tells God that the persecution is awful, and he just is about at the breaking point. And he says, but I know you're there, and you know, that's really good, but oh, i depressed, I'd like to kill myself. And Jeremiah goes through this incredible up-and-down emotional experience. But the verse I want you to notice is verse number nine. I think we have in that the key to character. If I say, in response to my problems, I will not remember God or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it in. I cannot endure it." Let me explain that verse to you as we close. Jeremiah admitted that the idea of just quitting the ministry and saying, hey, it's too much. Try to live for God, I get banged. I'm just going to go out and have a good time. I'm going to go out and just fit in with society. I'm not going to stand up for the Lord. I'm not going to be involved in prayer. I'm not going to get up early and have Bible study. No 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 matter how much I do, the more I live for God, it's not getting better and better. It's getting worse and worse. I think I want to quit. I'm tired. Some of you feel that way, don't you, on occasion? A little too much of a strain. It's hard. It's meant to be. But when Jeremiah contemplated quitting, something happened inside of him, which doesn't happen quite as much as it should inside of me. Happens a little, but I want it more. When something, when he decided it was time to quit, when he thought like that, inside he found his bones burned. What does he mean? I believe Jeremiah is saying this. I am so gripped by truth that I cannot run from it. Whatever fears or anguish or despair clutches my soul, an awareness of who God is, what he said, his eternal purposes, the fact that it's true. What God says, grips me so much stronger than anything else. Therefore, I must go on. I cannot deny what is true. The truth of God has reached the very core of my being. And I can deny everything else because fears and pain and worry and fatigue and discouragement and depression are less central than my deep consuming awareness truth. Remember in Acts 4, Peter and John were told, don't preach anymore. And they said, we can't stop preaching what we know is true. Paul said, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. What are they saying? Truth has gripped me at the very core of my being, and I must go on. It's almost that I haven't got a choice, because I know it's true. I have to. Yes, I choose to in response to truth, but when I don't, my bones burn within me. Some time ago, a man came to see me. This man had very strong, lustful desires in the wrong direction outside of marriage. Very, very strong. Intense. And he had an incredible fear of becoming close to his wife. He was scared to death of deep oneness with his wife. It's not unusual. This man had a case of it in abundance. Sorted background, difficult problems in his background, which led to this incredible screaming within his bones. The very insides of his being screamed to go in this direction and avoid that direction, but this direction was sinful, and this direction, when he avoided it, left the marriage in ruins. He came to see me. And during our time together, the truth of God concerning who he was and Jesus, that I was a Christian, He knew that he was a sinner, that the Lord died on the cross to pay for his sins, and he was trusting not his own good works. He was trusting what Christ did on the cross for his sins when he fully paid the penalty that a holy God exacts against our sin. He knew that. He went on to enter into the implications of that justification that was his by faith. And he began to see his worth in Christ. He began to see his mission for Christ. And truth began to seep down deeper into the very core of his being. Not because I put it there, because I can't. I've tried many times and failed. But sometimes a spirit takes what I say and does the job. And truth went down all the way in. And I said to him, what are you going to do? Know what he said? I came to you, he told me, because I wanted to find out, to prove that I could not resist these urges, and therefore I'd be justified in leaving my wife and doing the other. But now God's done a number on me. What I thought would happen is, if I was helped at all, which I thought I wouldn't be, was that my urges would decline over here and my fears would get less. But thanks to you, Dr. Crabb, my fears are stronger and my urges are more intolerable than ever. Appreciate your help very much. (laughs) Uh, But God has done something. He has penetrated my being with that which is true. And even though the idea of going here is irresistibly attractive, or so it seems, and the idea of going to my wife is intolerably fearful, There's something deeper now inside of me and it's truth and I can do no other but give this up and go to my wife and I hereby commit myself to do it. The man is a happy marriage today. Why? He's a man of character. What's character? Doing what's right? That's too superficial. Feeling wonderful things inside? That's unrealistic. This man is controlled by truth. That's character. To be controlled by truth. Character is measured by what controls us inside of our bodies. Our bones sometimes scream. I want to break. Want to get away. Temptation's too strong. My anger's consuming. Lots of things scream within us for release. What screams the deepest? That's the measure of character. Is it truth? Have you started with the basic truth that I'm a sinner, that you're a sinner? That Jesus died for my sins on the cross. That I belong to Satan because I've served my master Satan. God in his grace has come along and said, I'm going to snatch you from death and put you in life by paying the price of your sins. You respond in faith to me and I'll give you life. And now, Larry, I've made you somebody of value, somebody of worth. And you've got a purpose in this life. It all makes makes sense. And I say, Lord, that's gripped me at the very core of my being. So that when I feel like i got to go to work tomorrow, oh, geez, rather than feeling guilty, I should be happy. Rather than saying, I'll get up early and have devotions, maybe I should, but go deeper than that. Has truth gripped me to the point where I can do no other but live for my Lord? Has that happened a little bit, maybe, I hope? Maybe a little bit new, I hope? How do we get that kind of character? Where truth is so pressingly, urgently, vitally real at the deepest parts of our personality that we're compelled to go in that direction. How do we get it? That'll be our topic for next week. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you're very patient with us because we stumble at the obvious. It seems so obvious, Father, that What you say is true and we should live by it. Lord, we mix it up with so many other things. The center of our being is not a commitment to truth so much of the time. There's no burning within us. When we do wrong, we feel more comfortable sometimes. Yet, Father, we're thankful for the work of your Spirit that's given us life. And we're thankful for that burning in our bones that is there. That compels us to go go on for you regardless of the cost, regardless of the pain, regardless of discouragement, regardless of who lets us down, regardless of how people disappoint us and hurt us, regardless of family problems, money problems, physical problems. Father, regardless of all of that, truth is to grip us. Help us to see how that's done through your spirit and to live lives that reflect the fact that we're consumed by the one who said, I am the truth. Teach us what it means to relate to him in a way that our lives are changed at the very core of our personalities. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.